assurances and the guidance that we do have from you. Thank you for this tremendous gift for every book of Scripture. Lord, each of them are precious, and it's a joy to be able to study each one, and in particular the book of Revelation. I thank you for the impact it's had on my life in bringing me to you initially, but even the ongoing encouragement that it has. And I pray that you'd give me special assistance to make the, the teachings of the book clear and uh, that those who are here this evening would be built up and encouraged and strengthened in their faith and uh, that, that you would bear rich spiritual fruit through this time that we have together this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. I want to introduce uh, the book again by talking about a book I read a few years ago called The Heart and the Fist um, by a man named Eric Breitens. He was a Navy SEAL. Um, And the most memorable story of Breitens that he tells during his SEAL training happened on the first day of what was called Hell Week. The trainees stood on the sand, and as they watched the sun go down on the horizon, all their instructors continued to warn them about all the things that were going to be coming up in the week ahead and to, to build their, their anticipation and fear, really. And they had already endured in their training uh, pain and cold and other sorts of trials. But as they stood there on the ocean shore and they were watching the sun go down, he says, something broke in our class. And he watched as man after man quit even before any of the next revolutions of training started. And then he writes this, They quit, I believe, because they allowed their fear to overwhelm them. As the sun went down and the thoughts of what was to come grew stronger and stronger, they focused on all the pain that they thought they may have to endure and how difficult it might be. They were standing on the beach, perfectly at ease, reasonably warm, But they thought that they might be very cold and very pained, and they thought that they might not be able to make it. Their fear built and built and built until they finally broke and gave up and rung the bell. This demonstrates the destructive power of fear. When When we allow fear to rule our thinking, instead of trusting in the sovereign goodness of God, we will quickly And the contrast is also true. When we do face our fears with confidence in God's sovereignty and His love and His power towards us, that's what enables us to hold fast to His promises, even in the most difficult situations. And, and, And therefore, we prove the reality of our faith in the trials because we have to go through them. And the book of Revelation makes clear that we are in the midst of a massive spiritual war that's been going on since the beginning of time since the beginning of creation. Because Christians serve Christ, Christians are going to be the target of Satan in this war because the the war is against Satan and Christ. He wants to go after Christ, so he goes after Christians. And the casualties are marked by those who are going to fall into worldliness and idolatry and immorality, but it's those who persevere into the end who will eventually win. And the book of Revelation was written essentially to get us through what the Bible describes as hell week or 
the tribulation. The primary application of this book to Christians is the need to endure in the face of real and horrific threats. And last week in the overview of Revelation, we covered the who, the where, the when, and why of Revelation. And we began to look at the what of Revelation. That is, what's this book about? And uh, the major themes of the book. And the first theme that we looked at last week was the call to pursue purity and to flee sexual immorality. And the second major theme is similar. And that is the danger of materialism and luxury. And this is the focus of uh, Jesus' warning to the church of Laodicea. Uh, He warns them that it's their material prosperity that caused their faith to become lukewarm. And so if you look at Revelation 3, verse 7, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And so this is in uh, stark contrast to the church of Smyrna, who despite their poverty, he says, are spiritually rich. That's in Revelation 2.9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are the synagogue of Satan. So you have this contract with, contrast with a, a wealthy church that's spiritually poor and a poor church that's spiritually rich. And the whore of Babylon is not only reviled for idolatry and sexual immorality, as we saw last week, but for her uh, luxurious and sensual living she enjoyed and promoted. Uh, Revelation 18, it says, The merchants of the earth have grown rich from her power of luxurious living. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. It's her judgment. So because of her luxury and uh, her, her self-glory, it's it, because of that that actually her wrath is, God's wrath is coming upon that city. And when the city of Babylon is destroyed, the peoples mourn particularly because they once lived in luxury with her, it says, Revelation 18, or 18, 9. In fact, look at the whole of chapter 18. Just by glancing at it, the whole chapter is really just this massive mourning of the world over the destruction of their loss of luxury because of the loss of Babylon. Just begin looking at verse 11. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves. That is human souls. The fruit which your soul longed has gone for. From you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchant of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and with pearls. In verse 19 it says, And they threw their dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, for the great city where all who had ships 
at sea grew rich by her wealth. We just typically don't think of luxury and wealth as being a bad thing, but that's what's emphasized that defines this city that is adamantly opposed to everything that Christ is seeking to accomplish in this life. And, and the city, Babylon, is defined by three things in Revelation. Idolatry, immorality, and luxury. And if you think about it, those are actually the three things that I think would best define our culture. And Christians, therefore, living in America should take warning. If the same city that's described as drunk with the blood of saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus values the same thing our culture values. I'm not saying that uh, America is the whore of Babylon. That's not my point. But the fact that she's embraced the same loves. That should be concerning to us. That should just raise at least our awareness. And this is why the Apostle John warned in his first epistle when he said, do not love the world. Right? The same author of Revelation, do not love the world or the things of the world. The love of the Father, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And it's just very easy, especially because we live in our culture, to think it's really not that bad. Because everybody else around us is loving and indulging in the things of this world. It's really not bad. But you can see the danger when that's what men love and delight in, and yet they have no problem having slaves and slaughtering Christians as Babylon is reflected in doing in in this chapter. A third major theme is that of witnessing or bearing testimony. And the Greek word for witness, as you probably know, is martyro, where we get the English word martyr. And the word occurs 15 times in the book. And it speaks to one of two things. Holding fast to the testimony of Christ or bearing testimony, as in, preaching. For instance, you have the two witnesses in the book of Revelation who both preach and hold fast to their faith despite the opposition that comes against them. And they thereby serve as examples for the church to follow. Even by the fact that they're called witnesses is elevating them for the readers of the book of Revelation as examples to follow. They're unique in that you know they're given divine power and we're not necessarily given the same divine power, but their their boldness and their faithfulness is something we're called to follow. And this is noteworthy in light of our study of Acts, wherein witnessing is also a major theme. The word comes up a ton there. And it, it in, in Acts it refers both to sharing the gospel and living out the gospel, both teaching the truth as well as holding fast to the truth. And in Revelation as well as Acts, those Christians who are bold in their witness for Christ and who hold fast to their witness to Christ, they should and they should expect and probably will experience suffering. Which brings us to our next thing. And that's the expectation of suffering and death. If you look at Revelation chapter 2, Jesus encourages the church of Smyrna this way. He says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Revelation 2.10. And then he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So he's telling them, you're going to suffer, you're going to die. But don't fear it. Because I'm going to give you the crown of life. So I want us to see, to see that. 
The expectation is suffering and death. But it's not something to fear. It's just something that's part of the process. It's part of the plan. In Revelation 12, 11, Christians are described as those who love not their life unto death. It's a great, great way to describe true believers. And this is actually how they overcame Satan, it says in that passage. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. It's talk about spiritual warfare. The way you overcome Satan, don't love the world, and don't even love your own life, even unto death. Consider also the song in Revelation 13, verse 10. And this is worth setting to heart. It's one of these passages that would be good to memorize. It says in verse 10, If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Again, Revelation is setting forth this expectation that, that, that suffering and death is an expectation. If it's been appointed for you, don't fear it. Don't flee it. It's been appointed by your sovereign God. And therefore, just endure. Just hold fast, even if it costs you your life. In fact, the whole point of the chorus is don't be surprised at the coming violence because God's appointed it. Nothing's gone wrong. It's all a part of the plan. And just as, just as Christ was unjustly slain, we should expect that will happen to us as well. Now, the consequence for not worshiping the beast will be death. Revelation thirteen fifteen and 20, verse 4. But it's because of their willingness to die that it says the saints will be blessed. Revelation 14, verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. That's given for us. Have courage. The Lord's not missing anything. If you die for the sake of Christ, your deeds will follow you. They will be remembered in eternity. It's a great... I mean, when you think about how much things you've done in life that people just forget, I mean, half the trophies you might have at home, you might not even know how you got them. Even we don't remember our accomplishments. But God will remember our good deeds. Especially when they come at great cost. Even if nobody else knows. The next theme is the confidence in the the coming wrath of God and vindications for wrong suffered. Really, the whole book about of Revelation is about the coming wrath of God. In fact, there's so much so much of the book is about the wrath of God. I'm not going to cite all the different passages. But I do want to highlight how the book um, points not just that God's anger coming upon the world, but how his anger is often said to come upon the world because of their persecution of Christians. It's easy to assume, okay, everything that's going on in the book of Revelation is that God, God's wrath for against sin because we're wicked and we deserve to be judged. But what actually the, the text often emphasizes is this wrath is actually coming against the world because of their persecution of believers. I want you to see that. In, in chapter 6, the saints plea with God for vindication. 
look at verse 9. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Okay, so that's their prayer right before the seventh seal is broken, which then ushers in the seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh seal is open in Revelation 8 when an angel pours out a golden censer, which symbolizes the prayers of the saints. And so all of this wrath that's getting poured out is really what it's symbolizing. It's all in response to the saints praying for God to vindicate them. Because of their suffering and persecution unjustly. Which tells us something. Saints should expect that this is what's coming. That it's going to get so bad, our prayers aren't going to be defined by, God, will you please give me this stuff? It's going to be, God, will you please bring vindication to my name? Will you please vindicate those who have slaughtered my family unjustly? And the Lord wants us to know He will. And these judgments come in answer to the saints' prayers for vindication. We see that in verses 3-5, through chapter 8. And then after the fall of Babylon in Revelation 19, the saints rejoice, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. They immediately recognize this wrath is being poured out because God's vindicating his servants. And this is intended for our encouragement. See, although it might seem that God has just turned a blind eye because he's allowing us to suffer such horrific treatment, such loss, and, and without any recourse, God wants to know He does. The wicked aren't getting away with it. He sees every single thing that they're doing, and He will take vengeance on those who persecute us, whether it's by simply violent words or, or with physical violence. And it's confidence in this truth that enables Christians to take it on the chin when they're slandered or they're assaulted. Remember what Christ said back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to, the other, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And if anyone forced you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If anyone asks for something you have, if they forced you to do something, go above and beyond. Paul says to the Romans, in Romans chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So what do we do? Verse 20, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Lord wants us to know it's not our job to take vengeance. Even when our loved ones are attacked. Even when we are attacked. It's His job. Nahum 1-2. 
Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversary and keeps wrath for his enemies. And that's how the Lord announces himself in that book. And that's what the whole book is about, is the wrath and vengeance of God. And so, for many people, if you were not to take vengeance upon your friends getting killed, that might, or getting slapped in the face, that might look like cowardice. Like that's how most people would interpret that. But in fact, it's, it's extreme courage if you're doing it because you're seeking to obey your king. Because again, it's not, it's not the fear of man that drives such a passive and meek response, but it's a fear of God and extreme confidence in him, knowing you don't have the power to, to enact the vengeance that needs to be poured out. You don't have it. You can't give them what they deserve. But God will. And so what can you do? Pray for them. And you can show kindness to them, even to your own hurt. This brings us to the final theme, the reign of the Lamb. In Revelation 11.15, after the seventh trumpet's blown, this announcement's made. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now we know this is speaking of a future reign versus a present reign because it says Christ first must conquer his enemies. That's what has to happen first before he can reign. And that event is depicted in chapter 17, 14. It says they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. In fact, one of the most repeated Old Testament verses in the New Testament is Psalm 110.1. It came up before in the book of Acts. It'll come up again. It comes up in a number of other places where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So when is this going to happen? Again, you might recall that Peter cited this in Acts 2. It's also cited in Hebrews 1.13, Hebrews 10.13, and I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 15 to see how this Psalm 110 is quoted there. This is 1 Corinthians 15, which deals with the resurrection. Look at verse 22. Paul writes, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. When all those, like it says, verse 25, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be put under his feet is death. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's accepted except all except him who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So again, this tells us that the reign of Christ is speaking of a future reign, when he will eventually put all his enemies under his feet, and then after that he will rule them with a rod of iron. Notice how Christ is described, actually, in chapter 19 at his second coming. 
says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. After he strikes down the nations, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is describing, this is describing his second coming. And, and when he comes a second time, then he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So, is Christ currently ruling the nations with a rod of iron? I mean, you could say he's sovereign over all. He's directing everything. Uh, all authority in heaven's been given to him. That's absolutely true, Matthew 28. But is he ruling the nations with a rod of iron? No, it's describing a future reign. And we have to ask the question, why would he need to rule them with the rod of iron? If they're all saved. If they're all believers. The answer is, they're not all going to be believers. Sin will still exist upon the earth even during the millennial kingdom. Christ will reign over sinners. Um, And that's why there's curses that are pronounced in Zechariah 14 if the nation won't come and offer up its tribute to Christ. In fact, the whole scene in Revelation 5 is about Christ establishing his rule on the earth. If you look at that chapter, Revelation 5, note particularly the song that's sung by all creation. He says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. But also note what's said just a few verses earlier. It's not just the Lamb who's going to reign, but His saints. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth with the one who sits on the throne. And if you look at Revelation 20, verse 4, in fact, do that. Amazing promise here. He says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So it's not just Jesus who's sitting on the throne. It's the believers, all who were steadfast, all who overcame temptation to the end will reign with him. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. It's, it's emphatic. It's not just Jesus. It's believers. And there are allusions to the saints reigning with Christ in each of the letters that start the beginning of the book to each of those churches of, of uh, Asia Minor. Note particularly what he says to the church of Thyatira. And that's in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with the rod of iron. So it's not just Jesus. It's believers as his servants. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, he says, even I myself has received authority from my Father. Just as I've had authority, I'm extending that to you, my servants. 
And similarly, he tells the Laodiceans in Revelation 3.21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And he makes it clear what he's saying. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. There is no higher blessing than that. I mean, you can't get any better than that. Sitting in a throne, a divine throne with Christ, with the Father. That's what he's promising. He's making it very clear. If you overcome, if you don't give in, if you don't cave to immorality or to luxury or to idolatry, if you don't accept the mark of the beast, if you endure... You will sit with me on my throne. In fact, Daniel chapter 7, which speaks also of the end times, says this in verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. This is what Jesus told His followers. We'll end with this. Matthew 19. Truly I say to you, in the new world, When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I mean, Revelation and what, what Jesus is saying, what Daniel said, all of it is meant to give us a very clear, sober picture of what the future is going to look like and what our expectations for our life should be. It's not going to be easy. It will probably cost you very dearly to follow Christ. You have to assume that. But when you face that loss, don't be shaken. Because you know on the other end, you is coming in a reward that that really words can't describe, honors that this world can't describe. And he wants, he wants to give us confidence. The suffering isn't an accident, and neither will be the reward that's coming. Both are assured for Christians. Let's pray that God would give us grace to endure. Lord, we, it's, so, it's easy to talk. It's easy to preach what you say. And yet, Lord, it's, it's hard to even endure humiliation, disrespect, physical violence, of course, in, in the small ways. Lord, very, we, we have not really experienced much injustice yet. Lord, therefore, our, our faith hasn't been tested, and so it's easy to, to, to be fearful and nervous. And yet, Father, We pray that you would prepare us. That you'd continue to test our faith even in small ways. Helping us see where our attachments are. What we need to let go of. What we need to pursue. What we need to do differently. Lord, even if we don't have to endure the intense 
persecution that's described in this book or in other parts of Scripture. Lord, that we would be faithful despite it. That we wouldn't get caught up in this world and its, its vanities. But that we would remain faithful to the end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Let's, uh, let's gather over in the, um, the other room for prayer.